Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Four years after the 2010 anti-quota, anti-retaliation law was enacted in New York, we see a 12-year NYPD patrolman Sandy Gonzalez of the 40th Precinct being retaliated against by his supervisors for low summons and arrest numbers. His punishment is to stand by himself on a desolate street corner for the entirety of his eight-and-a-half-hour shift and doing absolutely nothing while crime unfolds around him. Crime and punishment cinematically observes four years of policing in New York City from the perspective of a group of minority whistleblowers who risk everything when they decide to expose racially discriminatory policing practices, systemic retaliation and corruption in the NYPD. We're joined today by the director of this film, Crime and Punishment, and that would be Stephen Meng. Stephen, welcome to film school. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. Well, Steve, where did this, where did, how did you get into this story? How did you sort of, uh, what was your entry point into this world? Uh, because the, the police are notoriously closed ranks when it comes to discussing their business. Uh, how did you find sure. a way into this story? Sure. So this is the fourth project, actually, my producing partner and I um, have done on the NYPD and um, quota-driven policing issues. Um, we had done two shorts and a one hour um, about this. And in those previous pieces, there were a few anonymous sources that were silhouetted um, that essentially decided they wanted to be more transparent with their battle um, against the department. We were uh, initially introduced to the first officer by way of a, uh, an attorney who was representing one of them. And that officer was happened to be somebody named Adil Polanco, who with Pedro Serrano were involved in this 2013 federal trial on stop and frisk. Mm -hmm. And so when they saw and others saw that despite a a victory in uh, federal court over the discriminatory use of stop and frisk, felt that things actually weren't improving on the job or um, in minority communities, they wanted to be more vocal about their fight. And so I was really compelled by this opportunity to actually film with and observe over a long period of time a very human narrative about cops who were kind of evolving into this, you know, role of full-blown whistleblower. What we didn't know at the time is that, you know, they would then become part of this um, growing group that... uh, plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit against the department and that that would lead to a whole array of other stories and individuals to help create this very systemic view of the criminal justice system and problems with policing um, in New York City. I'm going to take just a quick sidebar here for you in terms of uh, this is what I love about documentary films and documentary filmmakers is while you have educated guesses, educate, sort of an educated gut feeling about where your film could go, the fact that you're, that you're always so willing to take that leap of faith and stay with, a, stay with a, a subject or a story that you feel passionate about and to see it pay off. And I, I just want to, for people who are listening to the show who are documentary filmmakers, my hat's constantly off. 
in terms of saluting you for this sort of this wonderful instinct that you have and and seeing where it will fo- where, where you follow it to its its conclusion and uh this is a sounds like this is an example of that appreciate that you know i think that like it's always you're always filled with doubt that what you believe is unfolding in a really kind of profound way is going to be something that people feel feel something about as well and um, walk away kind of um, having experienced something a bit transformative in their thinking or help them see the world a little differently. And, you know, this process is so messy and, you know, uncertain. And it's, it's, I, I, I always am impressed when anybody film finishes a film that they started out, um, you know, documenting because it's, it's, it's never a guarantee. And so I, I personally wasn't even certain until the significantly through the editing process that, you know, we would actually even have something that could do justice to the story. So well, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah. Whenever I see somebody <laughs> else finish a film. Yeah. And, well, in addition to that, in addition to as if that wasn't, you know, enough, the fact that you've taken on a subject, that, again, as I said at the top of the interview, about an organization that is not just in New York City, but across the, the landscape of America, where police are notoriously closed-lipped and, and difficult, sort of the, the, uh, the blue shield that we talk about all the time that they hide behind and a lot of, uh, a lot of that. And in addition to that, one of the beautiful things about crime and punishment is that you found a way to tell the story that we can all relate to in the persons of these 12 individuals who stepped forward, as well as Manny, uh, Manuel Gomez and his story and how he goes about sort of we see both sides of it. We see police who are forced to meet. Well, let's get into the meat of the story here. I mentioned the quota system. Talk about sort of it's sort of one of those things that people have been talking about and assumed for a long time and was never discussed. And then suddenly we're not doing it anymore. Uh, and so what sort of what is your feeling about someone who spent some time in New York City and how people feel about uh, that situation? Well, the, you know, one of the really surprising things is that realizing that people are aware of the quota system to some degree and perhaps think, believe that it's, you know, innocuous or, or else they are totally unaware of it and feel like this is it was it's not something that was ever reported enough. And yet here were cops who have been trying desperately to get the attention of of the media, of um, right. citizens and politicians and lawmakers and, and, and were unable to for so many years in a sustained way. And so um, I think this has a lot to do with this idea that the department has been very good at portraying itself in a certain way that sort of o- overlooks some of these issues. And, and, and yet, you know, there's clearly been a violation of uh, labor laws there there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that has been gathered over many years actually that the city has um, and the department has been in violation some really you know not just the law but serious levels of like trust in the deterioration of the idea of what um, how policing how officers can be regarded yeah. um, I, I think that's one of the most troubling ideas that we're seeing just in, not just in the city but nationally that there's like a loss of respect of the uniform because of the policies that departments put into place, whether that's, you know, literally the quota or um, other 
um, notions of like use of force or rules of engagement. You know, we're seeing throughout the country this idea that law enforcement has been um, utterly delegitimized uh, for good reason and could be so much more salvaged and, and, and um, the, the relationships between officers and minority communities could be far improved. People really just listened to law enforcement who are active due to who understand what works and what's not. When I'm right, our listeners were speaking with the director of the documentary film Crime and Punishment. It comes out today here in Los Angeles at the Royal Theater in Los Angeles. And um, it's a fantastic documentary on a lot of levels. We've talked about some of them, kind of the way in which these 12 officers, uh, NYPD officers, step forward. They were known as the NYPD. PD-12, as well as uh, Manuel Gomez, who who is about helping people who have been wrongfully accused, and he is a man who gets right into the meat of the matter. He is, he is right up in the face of the people that he's working with and working to find out the truth. He is a wonderful sort of the flip side of this quota system, of the damage it causes, especially in the uh, African-American and Latino community. This is devastating for young people, and it it, it ruins their lives before they really get started in some cases to be wrongfully accused and have to deal with that moving forward. It's uh, it is it is just a such a beautifully told tale because we see all of the important elements in this. And I'm sure that was important to you to bring in all these different elements into the film Tell me about this sort of your your uh, getting the, gaining the confidence because I can imagine there was a lot of reticence on the part of some of these people to talk to you. Tell me about gaining the confidence of the NYPD twelve officer Edwin Edwin Rand, Ed, right? Uh, yeah. Amazing man. Um, were they were there was there reticence? What was there some sort of a a, a, a learning process or a getting used to one another? You know, I think there's something to be said for. The idea that when filmmakers continue coming back and demonstrating that they care about really creating a very deep and nuanced representation of complex issues, mm-hmm. that means a lot. And I think this, the, the simple kind of like um, endurance that we exhibit really takes, I think, the relationship to um, deeper and deeper places. You know, I, I, I kind of understood at an, from an early point that part of what we're trying to do is capture uh, something that is sort of invisible to a lot of the public and yet is occurring in plain sight for uh, law enforcement and communities that feel targeted by law enforcement. This is an idea that I think Edwin Raymond, other members of the NYPD 12, and some of the families that we were filming with, I think could just really relate to because they have been trying to kind of prove the existence of this institutionalized feeling discriminatory practice and yet have been called every word in the book um, in some cases. And um, for the the officers have been seeing their careers really stalled out or destroyed or experienced great retaliation for pushing back against what they feel is unfair. Yeah. One of the things that makes this so egregious is these are guys who are trained to be suspicious of what's going on around them. That's their trained eye, their trained instincts, is to see and and be ahead of something that might be happening. So for them within their own ranks to know that they know, they knew immediately that what was going to happen to them before it happened. 
and yet they still had the courage to continue to move forward to try to address this, uh, which is just another remarkable part of the telling of this story. And and also one other element, there's so many elements in the film that I, we could talk about for the next hour in terms of just issues that are brought up, obviously the racial component, obviously the just the money is the thing that you, you talk about. But we, as we found out in Ferguson, the city was essentially being financed into a great degree in Ferguson, Missouri, on the backs of people who were being written up for traffic tickets, jaywalking, petty crime, petty offenses. And yet it was all, it wasn't about justice. It wasn't about really that much about the community safety. It was about feeding the beast of the, of, of, uh, the coffers of the community in order to maintain whatever it was maintaining. I, it, I mean, the money part of this is a, is a big part of it, revenue. That's right. And Sure. You know, when you have a department that has 36,000 uniformed officers and it's expensive. an operating budget yeah. of uh, roughly like $5.5 billion annually to keep the organization running, you know, the, the city is going is to really keep track of... <laughs> The, the incoming revenue that that institution is generating. I mean, how could it not? Yeah. Um, and how could it not just track it, but kind of expect that those numbers be maintained? And That's so, right. pay your way. Um, yeah, to pay their way, right? Yeah. And so, you know, when you have situations like, you know, one anecdote after Eric Garner was killed um, in Staten Island, there was a comment that the mayor made that he paid dearly for, which um, he he mentioned having to talk to his son Dante about the um, dangers um, as a young black man that he could be exposed to um, at the hands of police who may not respond to him in the way that he would want them to respond to him, right? And so the the police union, uh, a lot of rank and file, um, offense to this, and it was actually exacerbated a bit by the, the PBA president. Um, and so there was a, um, a work stoppage that was informally implemented where... Um, the city started to lose $10 million per week because the NYPD at large basically stopped policing, which meant stopped summonsing at the level yeah. that they did normally on a day-to-day to generate the revenue that they generate. And yeah. so um, I think this was a real wake-up call for the mayor that what you don't do is you don't offend the department, and you you don't challenge the department in, with any potentially sensitive rhetoric. What this film shows is we have a huge undertaking here to reform police in ways that make it more effective for the community, as well as another financial model for it to be financed in ways that are of benefit to society. So, but this film does just a fantastic job of uh, sort of putting a lot of issues in front of us and understanding them in a, in a much clearer and coherent way. So it's uh, um, congratulations again on this film, Crime and Punishment. And uh, one last quick question. Did you ever feel like you were targeted or did you ever feel like you were in danger by doing this? Obviously, you, you were out there doing this and probably had a profile with the police. Did you ever feel like you were in trouble? Uh, you know, I've tried to really be as cautious as possible in, in making the film. Of course, you know, it's been um, a bit nerve-wracking, but, uh, you know, the real risks are being taken by um, all of the officers okay. who have put their names and their livelihoods on the line. And, okay. You know, they've done this very strategically. Okay. You know, this is the film doesn't break anything. 
any real major news. You know, this is something they've been going to the media right. and trying to speak about for years, actually. Yeah. And so, you know, my feeling is it would be a pretty bad public relations for something bad to happen to a filmmaker who is just honestly documenting and tracking uh, in an observational mode this thing that was unfolding already in the public eye. You know, what we've done is amplify it probably to a degree that they would have never expected from a documentary, but, you know, I, I, I don't think that this is about my perspective or my you know, opinions on the matter. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I've tried very hard to suppress that so that the process could be open to really uh, observe and truthfully capture real moments that, yeah. you know, people should just bear witness and, and form their own opinions about. Well, well, thank you so much. Um, the film is Crime and Punishment. Keep following your instincts, Stephen. Uh, we've been speaking with the director of, of Crime and Punishment, Stephen Mang. Thank you again for being here on Film School. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.